This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. So the men's Tour de France in 2023 is wrapped up. The women's Tour de France is underway and the World Championships in cycling are just about to get underway in just over a week. There is a lot happening in the world of sport and we're going to dive deep into the world of cycling and many other topics in this episode of the Science Sport Podcast. The Science of Sports Podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. So all the way from Boston, London, Colorado, not Boston actually, sorry, not Boston, Colorado, Denver, London and now back in Cape Town. Professor Rostock is finally back in our studio here in Cape Town looking a little bit uh, jet lagged. You must be jet lagged after Boston, all this traveling. <laughs> Boston was in July, yes, early July. I can't keep up with all your traveling. This was my third trip to America since the middle of May. Mm. Have you got yeah. your green card yet then? <laughs> <laughs> I recognise the security, the border control offices. Uh, morning, Mr. Tucker. <laughs> you back again. <laughs> won't be, won't be more than a few days today, Larry. Yeah, I'm, I'm tired now. We I'm won't use I'm, the glove to search you this time. I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad I'm done with that for a while. I've got to go back in December to the US, but for, at least for the next while, most of my trips are straight up to Europe, so that's at least good. But it was a good trip. And what were you doing there? There was a conference in Denver that was organized by a group called Icons, which mm-hmm. was a, their first conference, some listeners may recall, was last year in Las Vegas. I spoke at that one as well. And mm-hmm. they, that, that group started um, thanks to the efforts of, of a Marshy Jones, sorry, Marshy Smith and Kim Jones. Kim Jones being the mother of one Ramey Jones, who was a swimmer who swam against Leah Thomas during the Ivy League swimming meetings. Leah Thomas, famous as our transgender poster girl of transgender swimming. Yeah, that's Mm. right. So that was the beginning of last year. Leah Thomas became the first known trans athlete to win an NCAA title. And for reasons that we've discussed many times, like people then started to pay attention to this viable threat to women's sport. Mm. And Kim Jones was one of those who said, hang on a moment, this is not right. And so they organized ICONS, held the first conference in Las Vegas, and then the second conference now was in Denver. And it's definitely grown. I mean, there's obviously a lot more to talk about now than there was then, because now you've had a host of other athletes like Leah Thomas. There's been Emily Bridges, there's Austin Killips. There's been actually like I've lost track of how many there are in cycling alone, let alone in uh, skateboarding and surfing in sports I'd never even thought existed competitively like disc golf that's in fact this is this is the point it's got to is that disc golf tried to close women's disc, disc sport disc golf's or, like frisbee you throw, exactly. you throw a frisbee around a golf course yeah, as exactly. opposed to hit a ball yeah and okay. it's it's viable in the US you know there's a there's a circuit with prize money and it's on hold because they cannot they tried to close women's disc golf off to female only 
and there have been legal challenges to the extent that now they can't run certain women's events. Wow. So now no women get to do it because trans women want to do it. Right. And that's what happens. That's why it's so spurious to say, oh, it only affects one or two people. It's actually affected every single It's affecting a whole display. sport. Exactly. Albeit a small one. So that's one mm. example. And then there have been other skateboarding, surfing. Uh, mm. There have been a couple of cases in rugby, as you know. I mean, that's why we looked it up. So anyway, it's growing, and so is this conference. So... And you were, there, you were there talking specifically about what? Yeah, there was a session on the second morning on the science and the physiological considerations. And, you know, I stood up in front of that audience and I said, I really hope this is the last time I ever have to give this presentation. Because I didn't study and get a PhD to explain to people that males are different to females. I mean, it should be obvious. That's a good intro. And I said, this, I, n- I never want to give this talk again. I know that they'll never be able to not give it again. Hmm. Because even on the first morning, I listened to all these people speaking, and I thought, like, this is this is f- not futile, but it's this is this is a waste because all the people in this audience already get this. Yeah. You know, they're only there. So in that sense, it's in that sense, it's more of a you're confirming what they know. Already. Yeah, it's like it's yeah. almost like an affirmation conference. Conference. Yeah. It's not an educational one where you're standing up in front of people who are undecided or maybe oppositely decided. And trying to persuade them of why biology matters and the fact that you can't have fairness and inclusion of trans women and safety all at the same time. And then that night I went back and I read the IOC policy and I reassured myself that actually there are in fact still people who deny the obvious biology. <laughs> so, and the IOC being one of them. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I read yeah. that and I was sort of like, okay, actually I still need to say this. Still because to be done. Even yeah. if it's not to the... I don't know, 200 people in this room, maybe someone will watch it on video someday and go, oh, actually, (laughs) there's a point or two here. So I spoke about the biological reality, what the research shows. You know, one thing that we have got now compared to last year is is that set of case studies. You know, it was like as far back as 2019, 2020, there was enough evidence to say, right, male biology is real. Male advantage as a result of that biology is real and significant. Testosterone suppression does not remove it. Therefore, your hypothesis, based on what we know, is that as soon as relatively decent male athletes transition and enter women's sport, they will improve their ranking so much that they'll start winning it. And that hadn't happened. And then we had Laurel Hubbard. Then we had Leah Thomas. Then we had Emily Bridges. And then people paid attention. And so... So I said, it's crazy that you needed these case studies. Why, mm-hmm. why, why could you not just believe the theory in the first place? But people mm-hmm. don't work like that. It What's seems. That, I mean, what, how, these studies come out. First of all, how, how do studies like that happen? In other words, are they sponsored by certain groups? Are there certain groups wanting to do more research in them? I mean, how do things like that kind of gain? Because it, it's important because a lot of the science, the science is what actually matters in this debate. When I watched what the UCI did, when the UCI made a decision around not mm. allowing transgender women to participate in cycling, the discussions on the forums that I follow are 90% obviously supporting it, but there are that 10% which still stick to the, you know, the, the narrative from those groups. But the science is what counts. So who basically gets yeah, that well, science going? I mean, how do you how do you get yeah, those studies so happening? When you say those studies, you mean studies that do what? That show that, that, that testosterone suppression, for instance, is not enough to curtail male advantage. Yeah, so most of that stuff comes from the medical world where researchers and clinicians have said, all right, this 
gender-affirming hormone treatment, so mm. a male who suppresses testosterone in order to identify as a girl or woman, or the opposite, a female who takes testosterone in order to identify as a man. That that kind of treatment is happening in the world. Mm. I don't know what the true rate is. It's probably not known exactly, but it's happening, and we need to make sure that it's safe, and therefore we study it. So, for example, there are these longitudinal cohorts where a gender-affirming clinic or an andrology clinic, whatever, where in Stockholm, for instance, is taking a group of 30 people over the course of five or six years, and everyone who comes in, they're tracking them for a year, two years, three years over time, and they're measuring things like bone density, muscle mass, muscle strength, general markers of health, cholesterol, etc., because they want to understand that the clinical treatment is clinically safe. Then from that, we start to get indirect measures of male biology which have performance implications and that's in fact one of the major criticisms of sports who've now gone with the biological fairness argument as in we are now going to exclude trans women from women's sports they are often criticized because they don't have studies on athletes Okay, that was my next question. Yeah, they're, they're so not specific to sport, right? So there's no yeah. one, no, and that's because there are so few athletes do it who were doing it. I mean, this is this is a relatively new problem. Remember, up till about 2019, DSD cases outnumbered trans cases mm. probably ten to one. DSD being Castosemia, like Castosemia, yeah. and so on. Yeah. So that was the only thing sport really had to pay attention to was mm. these DSD D cases, and. You know, us being here in South Africa, Semenya and the DSDs, for for a decade, from 2009 to 2019, all that dominated the conversation is, do these athletes with DSDs have an advantage? No one was asking the next question is, can that advantage be taken away? Mm-hmm. And it was only in 2019 that, certainly in my case, I started asking that question in part because I was suddenly having these conversations with people like Tommy Lindberg, who's been on our podcast um, Emma Hilton, who was who was okay in Denver in in spirit, <laughs> she was supposed to be there but couldn't travel because of an injury. But um, it was only then that the question started to be asked: Can you take that advantage away? And the the thing about it is, the IOC have said that you need that specific evidence, and everyone else is saying, "Well, no, you don't, because you know you know male advantage is real. You know that male biology can't be reversed by the testosterone suppression, and so." Until you can show that the performance advantage is removed, why would you open the sport? So you have effectively two groups who are looking at it from opposite perspectives and mm. consequently differing on who has the burden of proof, as it were. Um, my opinion was that the existence of male biology and its size, combined with the total lack of evidence that you could mitigate that male biology, never mind performance advantage, but if you if you can't reduce the lean mass, the bone mass, change the shape of the skeleton, mm. the bone density, and elements of strength, then on what basis would performance be reversed? You, you know what I mean? Like it's a, yeah. there's a leap of faith that you've got to say, yes, yeah, I see those clinical studies, but I think performance will go down. Why? Why would it? <laughs> How do you join those dots? So anyway, you could have hypothesized that you would eventually start to get Leah Thomas's and Emily Bridges and Laurel Hubbard's. And sure enough, I mean, so I showed some data from Hubbard. Hubbard competing in women's no, weightlifting. She's a New weightlifter, yeah. Yeah. Who, she made the Olympics, didn't she? She day, Well, Hubbard was the first known trans woman in the Olympic Games. Right. 
in the heavyweight women's Massively category as a 44, five-year-old in a sport dominated by 20-year-olds. And we've got lots of data that shows how you deteriorate as you get older. And so 40-year-olds do it. not lift. <laughs> yes, data and lived experience. <laughs> and so, so I got this graph that, that Emma Hilton had produced where, where um, Hubbard's lift, best lift at the age of 40, is average, is equal to the average of men at the same age. So Hubbard is not just slightly better than the females. Hubbard is in the men's range Mm. competing against females. Hubbard's best lift is 77% better than the second best lift. It's just ridiculous. Mm. And that difference is why Hubbard could then compete against 20-odd-year-old women because it's male advantage. And the argument is she took took her place away from somebody else who potentially should have been the Olympic Games for New Zealand and didn't make it because of her presence. Correct. And at the Commonwealth Games the year, two years before that, and at all other competitions before that. And that's the cascade effect. And so it was interesting at Icons in Denver because... You know, last year in Vegas, it was really small. It was a launch function. This year, you had Mari Amucci was there presenting, and she told a lot Famous of stories. Famous for commentating at the London Marathon. Yeah, that was after year. her career. I think she's fifth in the Olympic Games yes, and yeah. had won a number of marathons. Very, very British. well well versed and uh, mm. researched when you hear her commentating at the London Marathon. She does a fantastic job. Sharon Davies was there. She's the swimmer who's very was very well known protesting against doping because in the 1980s Davies lost out to medals in swimming as did many athletes to the East Germans and actually Sharon Davies has written a book which now combines the doping controversies of her actual career with the trans controversies of her post-career co-written with a guy called by a guy called Craig Lord and incidentally I met that Sharon there she gave me a copy of her book Nice. And the book's got some unbelievable details of the East German doping system mm. to the extent that they had abortion clinics in their training camps wow. for the athletes because that's how much abuse was We've got to get her on the pot, I reckon. Unbelievable stuff. Yeah. So like even, even tidbits from that section of it, never mind the trans section. Mm-hmm. But she makes the point that there were athletes who came fourth in those Olympic Games beaten by three East Germans. There, there, there were opportunities in the 1970s for black swimmers to win medals in the Olympic Games and, and never did denied by dopers and you can think about how the trajectory of history changes because of that and why it starts to matter so it was interesting to hear from them in in denver um there were a few others famous athletes speaking and other scientists they had a pretty good program and yeah it was a good conference i think the biggest challenge they've got now is going to be whether they stay focused on women's sport or whether they actually allow this issue to expand out. Because this issue I've realized, and it's where my expertise stops, there's definitely a hard line between me as a physiologist and where this begins, (laughs) Mm. is that a lot of the stuff around women's sport and taking women's single sex spaces away is actually linked to a societal, a wider societal issue against women. It's a women's rights issue. Sport is one stage upon which it's happening. And it'll be interesting to see how icons develop. Do they, do they fight to stay narrowly focused on sport or do they allow that expansion? I mean, like you could very quickly become a conference about women's rights, dealing with domestic abuse, women's violence towards women in prisons, um, a whole bunch of societal issues as well. Or do they stay on sport, you know? And so I said in my presentation that I could think of 50 things I'd rather talk about in women's sport than this. Yeah. 
rather talk about concussion in women. I'd rather talk about other injury risks. I'd rather talk even about equal pay and the physiological demands of cycling the Tour de France and why can't the women's Tour de France be three weeks like the men's? You know, we yeah. could do all kinds of cool sports science mm. stuff. Mm. And I said sort of jokingly that my vision is that in 2025, 26, we, we call it icons, but we actually talk about women's sporting icons instead of this idea about who should be allowed in and out of women's sport, which to me seems like a massive waste of energy. Well, we're quite looking forward to potentially getting somebody from icons. And just to clarify who they are, the Independent Council on Women's Sports, which is an advocacy group um, mm. comprised of current and former collegiate and professional women athletes. And uh, they, they, that's what they're doing. So the, the idea is potentially getting somebody on the podcast to talk about that issue around transgender, but also the many mm. issues around women's sport, because I think there is always this perception, and I think my perception is, I don't know whether it's right or wrong, that women's sport is as close to equality as it's ever been now. But is that real? Mm. Is the prize money so, the same? They always talk about that. Is the investment the same? We probably say that that's probably not true. Yeah, Why yeah, that is, yeah. you know, and there, there are some interesting dynamics and some interesting discussions around that. Extremely. And, you know, in the US, everything when it comes to that discussion is framed through Title IX, which was mm. legislation that was passed about 40 years ago, I think. And the opening of that text, I'll read it to you, is no person in the United States shall on the basis of sex be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance, which is legal mouthful. But basically what it did was it said that if you funded men's sport, you fund women's sport the same way. Mm-hmm. And so that's what that's why, like when you're watching the current Women's Football World Cup and you look at the USA, four-time winners, and have been though that strong thanks to Title IX because Title IX meant that their college system rewarded women in sport more than any other country. It gave them their first, the head start. So they were in effect the first mover in that space. It's the same thing for it's the same reason like world swimming champs is on the go. I didn't even know that until like literally yesterday. That's how crazy it's been. Have you have you watched much? Yeah, of I watched a bit of it. Yeah, I love the diving. <laughs> Dude, really, the diving. <laughs> diving is fantastic. I've watched about twenty five seconds of it because mm. someone sent me a clip of that French kid breaking Phelps's world record in the the oldest world record ever in swimming. That's right. 400 medley, which, by the way, was celebrated in the Icons conference because everyone, when they try and spuriously reject the notion of male advantage, they use Phelps as their poster boy. They say, but what about Michael Phelps? He's got big hands, big feet and long arms and big lungs. He's got an advantage. Why can't we allow? And now he's no longer a record holder. So it's like, well, yeah, Michael Phelps had an advantage, but it was literally 1% and now it's gone. No woman has ever come close to Phelps, whereas lots of men have. Anyway, so yeah. <laughs> people cheered when the Phelps record fell. because, <laughs> And now they'll need another poster boy. Maybe it'll be Usain Bolt next to try and reject male advantage. Yeah. But anyway, the point was, women's sport is on this extremely fast growth curve. Like in women's rugby, it's the same thing. So there's a lot to be said about its growth, but it's definitely not where it needs to be. And mm. I think it becomes an interesting discussion because... For those of you that follow this podcast, you'll know that at the time of us doing this, the Women's Tour de France is happening at the moment. And mm. uh, I think it's the second year we've had it, three or third year. Oh, I second second or third. year of its sort of revival. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. it's, I mean, I've really enjoyed watching it 
but it's not three weeks. It's not the same length as the min. It's only eight days. Mm. Um, so it's a Paris-Nice equivalent. Yeah. Or it's a Dauphiné, you know. That's exactly. So like, I guess yeah. it's a case of like, it's 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 small steps. You know, eight days, potentially it goes to 10 days, potentially it ends up in three weeks. But I suppose it all comes down to the commercial side of it because unless you're bringing in the sponsors and the money, you can't run an event for three weeks unless you bring mm, some money but in if around you don't, it. But if you don't run them and back them and give them enough momentum, yes. then they don't look attractive enough to sponsors either. So, yeah. Yeah. so sports are in a catch-22. And that's the case. Whenever you have a historical discrimination that you're trying to correct, you can't just let it happen because mm. the same behaviors that led to the problem will just be entrenched, you know? Yeah. It's a tricky mm. one for for them. And I know it's the same thing for rugby. It's the same thing for rugby, even looking at 15s versus 7s, let alone men's versus women's mm. 15s, men's versus women's mm. uh, 7s. See, the interesting, you, the interesting thing around that is that in rugby, there is this, and we've had this discussion before, the men's game is technically and from an entertainment perspective perspective potentially a, a better game to watch purely because men are bigger the ball it's suited to their hands etc mm. there's lots of reasons why that is but in other sports like cycling for instance you can get the same level in fact to some extent the women's cycling is even better to watch because there is an element of understanding of where they are so for us who cycle when they're going up a climb they're not pushing out inhuman watts that we see on the Tour de France they're putting out watts that maybe even we can understand wow. but still climbing still climbing amazing speeds up climbs but it's 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 a slightly more accessible to the average cyclist to look at the women's tour because they they don't make it look so easy actually and sometimes the men's tour looks well, almost pedestrian in, in some respects. I don't know. There's that paper that came out by Valenzuela et al. where the 20-minute power output, and we'll get that on the Col de Aspen and the Col de Tourmalet. Mm. Like the, women are, the women are doing between 5 and 5.5 five and watts a kilo yeah. for 20 to 30 minutes now. Yeah. There are very few men in this city, never mind the <laughs> world, who can do that. That's true. So I was looking at those numbers because in that, in that Valenzuela paper, they showed the top 10%, the top 25, top half. I, I'm barely in the bottom 10% of the women's peloton for even a 30-second sprint effort. Mm. So I'm not entirely sure. No, but, but, I mean, so what, I guess I'm saying it's more accessible rather than they are far less athletes. They certainly aren't. And I always think prime example is Ashley Mormon Passio, who's the South African champion. In fact, at the time of us doing this podcast, she's lying third mm. overall in the GC at the Women's Tour de France. If you look at around Cape Town, her queen of the mountain um Strava segments around Cape Town are often amongst the top 10 in the men in the province. Um, so she's got some amazing times around. So yes, I'm not which actually is, not disputing that they are incredible athletes for sure. I think in fact what you're doing is making the case for single sex sport because they are yeah. exceptional athletes. But you're right, like Norman Passio is one of those at the five and a half watts a kilo for mm. 20 minute level because she's she's definitely in the top four climbers in the world, if not yeah. three, right? Like, you've got to think, when they get to Tourmalet, it's going to be Vollering, Van Floten, and her. Correct. Who else is there? I mean, I yeah. can't see any of the other mm. other um, tour contenders. Similarly, while while I was away, Faith Kipiagon ran a 4.07 mile. Yes, I saw that. Like, ridiculous. That's <laughs> Another unreal. <record. laughs> how many men? How many men can do that? Yeah. And so the point is that there is well, significant... we see a woman break up the sub-four-minute mile in our Oof. lifetimes. Whoa. So it seems like a long way off, but sure. There needs to be one more iteration of the shoes, and I run 4.03, 4.04, mm. and then suddenly it's in sight. Suddenly but, in sight, yeah. But I mean... Because I think many... next to the two-hire marathon, that sub-four mile amongst women, women is, is the next... Well, we'll see... 
the, the next the, thing. The next barrier will be a sub thirteen, a sub fourteen five k for women, because mm. that's thirteen oh, th- sorry, fourteen oh something for the woman now. And that was mm. Kipiagon only two months ago. Mm. So Kipiagon could yet do the three thousand world record, mm. and then she'd have had the fifteen, the mile, the three thousand, the five thousand, all in one season. Mm. And then go sub 14 mm, in the five. Yeah. I mean, what a season. Mm. It's hard to watch that and not go, wow, eyebrows mm. raised kind of Especially thing as well. Especially because we've had some Kenyan uh, <laughs> exactly. eyes being a bit skewed. But anyway, enjoy the show, folks. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess the point is that like, it's that's there are very few South African men who will run that time. Yeah. And very few around the world in proportion to the world's male population. But there are some men who are going to run 345, 348s, you know. So that's the difference. Yeah. And I think it's the same on the cycling side. It's the same everywhere. Mm. But um, anyway, why were we on that? Oh, because Title Nine. So, so Title Nine then in the US is the thing that was meant to boost. And But the person you were mentioning about getting on is a, is a woman by the name of Nancy Hogshead, who was an Olympic champion back in the 1980s, swimmer, and then a lawyer, and became an advocate for women's rights, particularly around women's abuse, sexual abuse, sexual assault, equal pay, equal opportunities, Title IX. Mm-hmm. Amazing, amazing woman, one of my favorite people ever. And she said to me, actually, while we were in Denver, that they were about to file claims against hundreds of universities for Title IX violations, where they're supposed to match women's funding for men's and they haven't. And so there are still people out there who are pushing this and making sure that it happens. Because as much as they say, yeah, yeah, it's equal, it's it's still not there. So it's still needs to be sure. form, form from at most or in the front of people's minds, you know? Yeah. Mm. Well, we look forward to having her. We're definitely going to try and get her onto the show um, in the next couple of weeks. Some of the, uh, some, just on that, some of the stories, I went for dinner with her and her group and some of the stuff about the abuse in women's sports. Especially in gymnastics. Oh, oh my We all goodness. know the Larry Nassau story, didn't we? Oh, my yeah. God. Like, it's actually just astonishing. Mm. Uh, un- unbelievable. Yeah, well, hopefully we never see a Larry Nassau case, but it sounds like it's uh, it's been an issue for many years. And, uh, there have been a few in track and field mm, in the last mm, while. Mm. There have been some coaches investigated. Yeah. Even Salazar was eventually banned by that... Um, Oh, what's the group called? It wasn't. It was for inappropriate behaviour towards the female athletes. Mm, mm. Anyway, anyway, yeah, we'll hopefully we get stuck into that a little bit. And while you were there, and this is going to be the subject of a podcast that we're going to do next week. Um, you did message me a couple of times saying I've done a couple of uh, rides here in Boulder, mm. and I've been riding above two thousand six hundred meters above sea level. And my son actually, who was in the same time in the area um, sent a video of him going up a climb at, at 4,300 meters the altitude yeah <laughs> it's a special challenge isn't it I mean unless you actually altitude and I don't want to go too much into this but just very briefly what what was your experience of I mean Boulder's famous for being an altitude training camp for many top athletes around the world beginning to experience that sort of altitude what's that well, I've like? Been, I've been to Boulder before you know mm. and I grew up in Johannesburg which is at 1600 mm. meters that's the same altitude as Boulder mm. but and you I, climb out I, of Boulder up some of those and times. I would never have really even noticed the altitude but now, I'm, now I've become a sea level dweller and now I go to altitude and like I can't even walk up a flight of stairs mm. and I go what the heck is wrong with me so <laughs> Paul, honestly, I want to sell my bicycle in Boulder and say, no, I'm done with this. <laughs> <laughs> so, so demoralizing. Because three things at the same time. Like one is the travel fatigue and the jet lag. Mm. The second thing is the heat. Because like when I was there, I think when Wade came, your son, it, it had mm. cooled off that weekend. But I, I was going for these rides at like eight in the morning. 
And by 10 o'clock, it was 30 degrees. So having come altitude out of, and temperature. Having come out of a Cape Town winter at 16, 17. And then you start at 1,600 meters. And if you go east, it's flat. If you go west, it's straight up. And within 20K, you can be above 3,000 meters. It's unbelievable. And mm. jeepers, man. It's just the weirdest mm. sensation because you know how normally if I say, like, are you on your limits? You'll say yeah, I say, what's the problem? It's everything. Or maybe it's your breathing. Maybe it's your legs. In Boulder, your legs feel fine. Honestly, I'm like, what? But your body's But just... your lungs are just like there's a disconnect <clears throat> between your mm-hmm. brain and your legs. You just cannot activate more muscle. <laughs> so, so the whole ride is just suffering without pain. It's weird. Mm. Well, we're going to get like, in, into that next week because it is so, a subject which I've been reading some articles on the last couple of weeks around this because there are debates about the merits of it and the, yeah. the pros and the cons. And I think it's going to be an interesting so, chat about that. Yeah. So in Boulder, I mean, first day, because I go there, I'm like, I know the altitude and the heat are going to hurt. So I say, okay, I'm going to head east. I'm going to do a flat ride. And I ended up doing about three and a half, four hours. It was 100K or so. 150 watts and I felt like I was on my limit at 150 <laughs> watts that is at least 25 to 30 percent lower wattage mm-hmm. than I would ride here in Cape Town on an easy day and my heart rate was 10 beats higher and it was interesting over the course of the next five days the wattage got progressively higher and the heart rate came down mm. so by the time I left I was feeling maybe 10 to 15 percent compromised but I leave I always leave frustrated because I know that I'm being suppressed by the mm. altitude effect you know and it's a it's a really interesting sensation similar i remember being at five and a half thousand meters in kilimanjaro and it was the same thing mm. there's just this it's like the best way to describe it is this that there's like someone's flicked an off switch but you're you're conscious it's like a physiological coma mm. you know mm. Well, I don't want to give too much away here because mm. I, I do think we want to we, we dig really deep into it next week. So for those of you interested around the altitude discussion, keep an eye on our podcast uh, in about a week's time from now. And uh, hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll have some more detail on that because it is a very interesting space. Let's keep on to the subject of cycling and we're going to touch on some news um, before we wrap up uh, this year's Tour de France. And uh, the latest news is the very controversial Miguel Angel Lopez, Mm. who uh, very last year was actually fired by the Astana team for all sorts of things and not being much of a teammate. He was actually banned now. And, And what was the reasoning? It was the press release from the UCR talks about a probable failed doping violation. Do we have any idea... What a probable fail. Is yeah, that, is that poten- the potential is the potential, word they used. And it was weird because remember Lopez was kicked off of Steiner for his relationship with a dodgy doctor. Yeah, but he was and also then, quite controversial because he didn't, He the one stage, I but think. That it, was when he was, wasn't that with Movistar? Wasn't that yeah. in that documentary, The Least Expected Day? Was, was that not him? There was one occasion when he just, Started just he just stopped failed riding. Stop riding. Yeah, I think he was because he wasn't even this. What might have been Bobby Stump. And it was him and he's Enric, a controversial Enric character. Mass, yeah, yeah. And in this particular instance, they're looking into a guy called Dr. Marcos Maynard and the Spanish anti-doping organization. And apparently, Spanish law enforcement are doing an investigation into this fella. And he's been linked with Lopez, and that's why Astana let him go. And then, then the ITA, which you'll remember is that now that independent testing authority. That's that new agency that has kind of been outsourced by many sports to do mm. their doping controls. The Ironman guys also use them. Remember, that's, yeah, that's yeah. exactly when we discussed them was yeah. in the connection with that fellow, what was Colin, someone mm. or other, what was mm. his name, the triathlete who got yes. popped for doping. He cried a lot. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, 
Sure. And so, so then the UCI brings out a statement, and I thought the language of it was particularly interesting because they say here, after a review of the information and material provided by the ITA on the 26th of June and 7th of July this year, the Colombian rider has been notified of a potential anti-doping rule violation for use and possession of a prohibited substance in the weeks prior to the Giro d'Italia 2022. Now, I've not seen a potential ADRV. I've always thought of it as, yes, you've got an anti-doping rule violation or you're under investigation. We don't make an announcement to the public that you're under investigation. <laughs> we, we wait and then we either issue it or we don't. So this idea of a potential ADRV is news to me. I've never heard that language before. Had you? No. That's why it's an interesting one, isn't it? Yeah. And then yeah. it says, yeah, the UCI has decided to provisionally suspend the rider pending the final decision. Mm. So I don't understand why if the final decision is coming, you would make an announcement that effectively assigns guilt. Because, because what if the final decision is that in actual fact, you know what? It wasn't a doping violation. Mm. It was potentially one, but we've now discovered it wasn't. Then why have you squeezed the tube of toothpaste? before he knew that the, you know what i mean it doesn't it's it, so that that alone seemed weird as for what it was because the statement didn't say that he subsequently put something out on instagram which a journalist called rebecca reza who i met in denver kindly shared with me I, presumably this was uh, translated and it's a statement by lopez in which he does the usual, you know, he says, my, my blood passports have always been normal. I've never used banned substances. I've never used, even requested a prohibited substance near in the Jira, nor ever throughout my sports career. And I've collaborated where possible or where necessary. And he then mentions the, my alleged use of menotropin in Jira d'Italia 2022. So that's, that's the drug that he was allegedly in possession of. Yeah. So menotropin, since it's probably your next question, is a drug that's used to treat fertility issues in females. Mm. And so like, not relevant to a professional male cyclist. Well, then. we've seen we've seen a few cases like this. You get these SARMs and you get these androgen, sorry, estrogen modulators as well, where you take these drugs because they stimulate the formation of testosterone. So menotropin, if taken by males, stimulates luteinizing hormone, which then stimulates the release of testosterone. So that's the effect they're going for. And that's why it's banned, is because in the end, it's allegedly doing the same thing as increasing testosterone just by an indirect pathway instead of directly. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, so between Lopez and the UCI, what seems to have happened here is that the investigation into the doctor has revealed documents that have shown that he, Lopez, was in possession of this menotropin drug at the Giro d'Italia. Mm. And so therefore it's a potential anti-doping rule. I still don't understand yeah the fact that it's like future tense mm. either to me remember there was a time where the b sample the a sample result wasn't announced before the b was done yes that well, seems not to be done now either it's always leaked <laughs> it's always it's either leaked or, or, or published and then mm. but by the time that happens it's kind of too late from the mm. perspective mm. of the athlete and i don't i'm not defending lopez here by the way I, <laughs> there's always been some suspicions but he was and fired he, by astana last year for this for his connection exactly yeah, yeah exactly so that's why and this has been ongoing for a while and so many people say well okay cool eventually mm. finally it's come out it's interesting why it took this long i mean it's more than a year mm. 
but maybe the well, it's just yeah, late late. So then I was thinking maybe there are some parallels between this and the and the English um, what is it called GCMS. Remember the investigation into Richard Freeman. Mm-hmm. Effectively, it's a government-run tribunal, or it's U, it's rather it's UK medicine, and the anti-doping authorities are kind of like second in queue, and only once the government are finished with it do they get a first look maybe that's what's happened is that the anti-doping agencies had to wait for the spanish police to look into it and now they've gotten it they say okay we can proceed with this but i still don't i mean are we going to be in september when they say we've looked into it and by the way it was potentially one but it wasn't (laughs) if that's the Mm. case uh, lopez would be rather pissed off (laughs) Yeah, well, he's certainly uh, not covered himself in glory over the last few years as a professional cyclist. And, you know, it says that he's, mm. whatever happens now, I don't think anybody's going to touch him, let alone offer him any sort of contracts, um, given his reputation at the moment. Anyway, we'll keep a close, yeah. cl- close eye on that. So anyway, let's move on to uh, our wrap-up of the Tour de France this year. And uh, last week we talked uh, very in-depth around the uh, the time trial on the Tuesday before we did our podcast where uh, Jonas Vinegar uh, put 1 minute 38 seconds into uh, Tadej Pogacar. As we were doing that podcast, a friend of ours who, we, who spoiled us because we were trying not to watch the stage the next day but were sending us messages on WhatsApp. To he's paying for that this weekend. He's going to be paying yeah. for that in uh, fines and all sorts of things, and we're not even sure we're going to be friends with them anymore. Um, but anyway, um, the result was that Pogaccio, in fact, lost even more time the next day, and the tour was essentially over with Jonas Vinegar um, winning the tour for the second straight year. But it's one of those tours where there were lots of discussion points. First of all, the famous time trial. There's been discussion points in other podcasts around some of the research, I've seen a discussion on GCN, which is the Global Cycling Network, who have done a great do a great job on uh, on on um, uh, YouTube, and they've been talking about how they believe that the performances of Vinegar are completely justifiable, and you know the research and the technology, all the stuff that we've discussed, um, makes all these performances and records that we saw saw at this is to France being very realistic and not out of the ordinary. We've seen the other side of the coin, people saying these superhuman performances, people who are looking at the Tour de France maybe in a slightly more cynical way, saying that it's just nuts that we're seeing times that are better than during the Lance Armstrong's days when things were you know, completely out of control in terms of doping. Um, and now we've seen performances from uh, you know, two individuals, Pogacar and Vinegar, who are seemingly way above anybody else in the peloton, particularly during the Tour de France. And Vinegar seems that much better than Pogacar, even though Pogacar did win the second last stage, which was a great celebration for him. But Ross, just give us a, a kind of a, a wrap up from your side about some of the things that you picked on during the Tour and what kind of sticks in your brain if you had to remember the 2023 Tour de France. Yeah, two weeks, inseparable. Mm. Two days, different planets. One week or six days inseparable. Mm. <laughs> that's, that's what it was. It was two days that made the difference. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Seven minutes was basically created. Okay, yeah, you could dissect that and say on the Col de Marie Blanc, Vinegar put almost a minute in. Mm. Bogatia took half of that time back the very next day. And then he was chipping away, chipping away, thanks to sprint finishing ability. And he's what was clearly a better 30-second power output. But on the two occasions where it was a straight-up 30-minute-odd effort or more, Vinegar was so superior that in the end, the tour looked forgettable. Yeah. And it was funny to see, 
on rest day two, which was literally the day before that TT, everyone was saying this is the greatest tour. And within two days, it, it looked like a could be the greatest victory margin. That's how big that's how big it was. People were then saying if if Vinegar could get another thirty seconds, he would be the it would be the biggest victory margin since the days of Ulrich in the nineties. Mm-hmm. It went from being the most competitive tightest to potentially the most open or one sided. Amazing. How does that happen? And I don't know. I mean history history probably is not going to tell us that. I can't as I said on the end of our last podcast, there is no acute doping intervention that could account for such an improvement in one guy relative to another. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Like, I can't think of what it is unless it's amphetamines. <laughs> but it's not. We know that, right? So I'm not saying that there's nothing happening, and I'm certainly not saying there's only one guy who needs to be questioned because I think the whole sport for three or four years has been like a little bit out of control <laughs> to be honest with you like yeah. the same GCN folk that justified now every single broadcast I watch they say what a time it is to be a cycling fan so many incredible performances so many amazing competitions mm. and races it's like you've been through this guys already and <laughs> you didn't come out of it like unscathed are we maybe not seeing the same thing happen anyway do you, do you fight with the fact that it, it, it's hard not to be cynical I mean you're a cycling fan as much as you are a scientist and I find myself in this space a lot of the time watching the Tour de France where I want to believe that what I'm seeing is true I look at the interviews with Vinegar and Pogaccia my mind says to me it doesn't look like yeah. anything is happening but yeah. the performances outweigh that innocence when when there were four k's or whatever left in that tt and Renegal was a minute and 17 seconds or whatever ahead of pagacha what adjective would you describe your you're watching it with just aghast yeah i mean i would i would describe myself as uncomfortable yeah. watching that yeah. you know what i mean yeah. yeah and i spoke to a couple of people not to go back to denver but a few people in denver with very close links to cycling and they expressed the same to me they said I don't know and I want to believe and I, I can't see what it is, but it's just it makes for quite an uncomfortable watch to watch mm. these two guys who are so much better than everyone else. And again, it's funny to me that that one day did it for a lot of people. For me, the day that they put 40 seconds in a kilometer on third place in the race, that's what did it. The day, the mm. day they put a minute in one and a half kilometers, which again is 40 seconds per kilometer, that's two speeds, you know. But there are so many factors in this, not just the reality of two guys who seem better. We must go, we've also got to remember, and you talk about that day when they put 40 seconds inside a kilometer. For the vast part of that stage, they were looked after by their team. So they are protected. They are only let loose so is when the guy they have coming to be. Third. To some extent, he's, yes. More, yes. He's sitting on everyone's But they also have wheel. very strong teams, UAE and Yumba more st- stronger than any other team in the peloton even yeah. better than Ineos. But does that mean that they are protected and therefore have more 
at the end because they are better protected by stronger teams? I don't know. I'd have said it's Rodriguez, be a factor. Rodriguez is sitting on Pogacar's wheel, who's sitting on Renegor's wheel, who's sitting on his team's wheel. So everyone's benefiting from the same strong team. Yeah. I don't know what Yamba are doing to protect Renegor more than Rodriguez is getting from Yamba's efforts. Mm other than fatigued, because he's just not clearly as good. Mm. So I, I don't know. I mean, it, it, it really is. It was, And it's exciting, and it's cool to watch, and what fun to see these guys having a go at one another. But underlying it all, uh, I just there's a sense of unease about it, I think, still. And that's not unique to the Tour de France. That's when I see a guy winning cobbled classics and mountain stages, I feel the same way. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I mean, you, you mentioned on our last podcast mechanical doping. I don't know. Yeah, but we, you see we, we know that's probably not happening because they do the tests and they've never caught a single person from mechanical doping yeah, since but they you know began. What the, like even there, for instance, and I'm, I'm, I'm sort of with you on this, it would be very difficult for me to imagine that that's happening because it would no. require too many people to know too much. Doping, mm. I think you can do one, you need one person, you can get away with it. That, that mm. feels to me like, too big, too complex a cover-up. Not not that I don't think cover-ups can happen, but it's a complex cover-up that. Eh? Can you imagine? Yeah. What, but, so the UCI Somebody's take these bikes talk. and they run them through trucks, right? And they do x-rays on them now. Yeah. They no longer do their little lightsaber, little iPad over them, which was a complete waste of time, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> now it's a it's an x-ray. Yeah. That x-ray should be public like a weigh-in in boxing. Yes, I suppose so. Like, why, why not? Why not make it public and invite each team to send a delegate to it, invite the media, and then put the X-rays on the internet? What's the problem? If if it's not happening, all you're seeing are the insides of bicycles. We know what they look like. Why not? So do why it? would you want to see that anyway? Because you want trust in the authorities. Because that's what's been lost in the last twenty years. So do you think that the authorities themselves? potentially are complicit in some of these. I think people think that they are. think they are. And the only way that the authorities will earn back any degree of trust that they're not complicit is to be fully, fully open in it. Because there are definitely mm-hmm. people who feel like, and we know like that Armstrong used to have conversations with who was the president then, Hein Verbruggen, who was looked after him. Yeah. There was an allegation that Cookson was looking after the British guys, Sky, in other words. So there's this there's this perception, and that's the thing you're fighting. Not you're not fighting reality here. You're fighting perceptions. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's true. So I don't understand why they can't be more open, transparent about the X-rays, transparent about tests. In the end, Yumbo took it on themselves to announce that he'd been tested four times in 48 hours, which seems un- un- unnecessary to me. If one if one test's not going to catch you, the next three aren't either, because that's not where the benefits being accrued. So I still wonder about the extent to which they're tested when they're in camps and in preparation and so on. All, the, all that stuff is still too, too unknown in my mind, you know? And it's the same as the power. We spoke on the last podcast. I st- we still have no ability to ask whether Pagacha was better, the same, or worse on that TT compared to, for instance, the one where he beat Roglic to win the yellow in 2020, I think it was. Yeah. We don't know whether this Pagacha 23 was better or worse than the one who won the tour in 2021. We don't know whether he was better than the guy who won it in 2022. We don't even know if Pagacha this year on the Puy de Dome was better than he was on the time trial. Okay, we know for well, sure. We do know that his times were potentially faster this right, year. Right, but then people say it's the technology. Yeah. They say it's the tailwind. They say yes. it's the road surface. They Correct. say it's the tactics of the stage. Like, there's a, there's a measurement here that we'd have asked to work out the input, and that's the power output. <laughs> we still don't have that dating back. Mm. Is Pagacha better or worse than Ulrich? Hamilton, Landis, etc. 
Oh, because the, and the same experts will stand up and say the tech is so much better today. Well, how much better? Is it forty-five seconds better over thirty minutes? Yeah. Or is it fifteen seconds better over thirty minutes uphill? And you see, the answer to that question goes a long way to establishing whether your explanation is credible or not. And power output would cut through all of that. You still never know whether it's the training methods and the sports science and the nutrition. You know, a couple of people on Patreon have said, you know, what about the fact that these days they're consuming 90 to 120 grams of carbs an hour? Because clearly the carb solutions are now better than they used to be. Mm -hmm. And the athletes are practicing. They're getting their digestion ready for this high volume carbs. And that might be performance enhancing. That's one, maybe to 2% better. That could account for some of it. But then you'd see that at least in the power. At the moment, point is we're guessing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's listen to a, a segment out of a podcast that was done by the guys at the Escape Collective who are do an amazing job uh, with many different sports. and um, But uh, they were very good around the Tour de France. And uh, they talked about particularly dissecting the Tour TT and the air advancements, speaking to a guy called Mark Graveline, who is uh, – Talks and he was he's a data engineer who talks a lot about the aero benefits um, of uh, bikes during the Tour de France. Matthew Haybor yesterday, would you not just publish Vinigo's data? Not even publish it because that makes it very official. Would, would you not just like have him on Strava and have everything uploaded, all everything he's doing? And his answer was sort of twofold. The first part was like, well, would that w- would that you know, provide an answer or would it just add more fuel to the fire? Uh, and that, that's not his words. That's just me sort of, yeah. that's, that's my version of what he said. Uh, and, and secondly, it was like, well, you know, we are in a performance environment and, you know, it's success is sort of almost key to any team's um, long-term viability. And why would they give away a performance advantage like that? Which I can, you know, in, in one way I can understand, but again, Going back, you know, if they if they got to the end of this year's tour and then give us a whole deep dive analysis on how they prepared for this year's tour, uh, I dare say they're not going to be resting on their laurels. They're looking to push further and further ahead for next year again. And and so again, the competition would only catch up to where Yumbo were this year rather than where Yumbo are going to be next year. So so two two parts to that one one is you know the transparency of the numbers um let's let's give credit to dan who who really dan bingham who really opened up you know his data and showed us what was possible and how low can you go and you know so so i i personally i think the transparency of the data would be a better thing um you know mm-hmm. it, you know it t- for them to say uh you know jonas is a point one six four, you know Fine. You know, it's, it's, it's very easy for other teams to say, oh, we'll just need to get to a point one six four. then. Well, you know, <laughs> it's but, very, very difficult to do. <laughs> but, but a little bit harder to do. Um, the, the, the second part of that is uh, it's, it's funny because at 2017, I was at the tour and the, the CEO of Argonne at the time uh, had set up a meeting with the folks. I think it was from ASO. It might have been the UCI or it was ASO. And they were considering putting a NOCIO type device on every bike and uh, they wanted to do it for two reasons one they could get the data and use it for broadcast to make the broadcast more interesting but they also saw as as a way to 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 look for for cheaters 
So what they figured out is if this device was showing you had an abnormally high power, well, that would raise suspicion red flags in terms of, you know, superhuman performance. And if you had an abnormally low CDA, that would be, well, maybe there's something other than the powers being applied to the pedals that's moving the bike forward. So they were looking for, for, for motor doping. So they, they, they saw, they saw an, an osseotype device as kind of like a, a well, let's, let's see if the data all fits. Uh, and let's see if maybe we can we can figure out if if someone is is cheating or not or not. So yeah, good guys from the Escape Collective, and lots to touch on there because mm. there's a couple of things they talk particularly about Dan Bingham. Um, yeah. He would explain who he is very shortly, but he was a guy who really did share a lot of his uh, his his stats and his numbers, so you could actually get a sense of what kind of rider he was. We don't see many of these riders sharing their watts. Some of them do, but very few of them do. Yeah, and you know, the question starts talking about watts. Ronan McLaughlin's the the guy, the interviewer you heard there. He's the Everesting world record holder, incidentally. He's mm. a tech guy over at Escape Collective. And so, for instance, he and he recently set a record from riding from one end of Ireland to the other and wrote a piece on mm. the tech of the bike that he used and how he shaved parts of his shoe off for aerodynamic benefits and so on. Really interesting guy. If you're into geeky mm. cycling stuff, like really cool. Did he fuel on potatoes? <laughs> Did he want Did he fuel on potatoes? <laughs> Sorry, sure. my apologies to the Irish. We know you don't live on potatoes. Um there's a history lesson in there based on surnames, but I'm not sure what it is. Um so so he's asking him about the power numbers and putting it on Strava. Now that that in itself is interesting because like Remco Evanapool often puts his training sessions up on Strava and then stops doing it as the race gets closer and closer. Maybe he did it for the Giro and then all of a sudden stopped because I think they don't want to show their hand and what sort of condition they're in. And that I get, that I get. I, I would agree with that. I've never understood why race power outputs don't go up because to me, a race power output is the same as in track and field recording a time for a 400 meter race. You know what it is. It's not helping you beat it. I mean, if a guy is going to run a 43.32, that's not going to help you beat him on the day knowing that he did it. You know what I mean? <laughs> Same thing here. If a guy's capable of 7.4 for 13 minutes, it doesn't matter what you do or knew, you still can't, you still can't use it to beat him with it. But I guess the justification so, from teams and riders is that they don't want to show well, too many of the stats because it gives their opposition a chance to understand their riding better. So in other words, where they're pushing out power, where they're strongest, if they're good on the climbs or they're good on the flats. Yeah, but I... Does that power dot not, dot or not give that away? I don't think that gives that away any more than they already know. Like, Does it not take because, away the poker face angle? In other words, if you've got a guy going up a climb and he's trying to show himself to be absolutely comfortable, but actually he's pushing out 500 watts on 12% gradient, and you know that but, he's hurting. But how, unless you know that in real time... You don't know the 500 watts. Well, you know what he's capable of. So in other words, if you know he's going to go up a similar climb the next day at a similar wattage and he's got a similar face, actually he's hurting. He doesn't. He might be looking cool, but he's not. Uh, again, does it not give you that competitive advantage? I, I don't think so. I, I think people try and say that. I don't think it does. I mean, if if it gave you all that, you would never have the race. Why, why even bother with the race? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, mm. So you but, don't think it's fair to say it's a competitive advantage not to share Things like wattage in I particular, which training, is the only thing that, yeah. Training-wise, yes. Because, mm. you see, Vinegar in March, April, May, and June this year, and they've said subsequently had perfect training, which mm. they would, obviously. 
course. I said the training was absolutely perfect. He's Danish. They do everything perfect. You don't want to. You don't want to necessarily share with everyone what that perfection looked like, because then people will probably start imitating, learning from it, and so on. And then I can understand they'd feel that they're giving away some degree of competitive advantage there. But I don't. I've never fully agreed nor understood the idea that race part. But it's because they know when when Pogacar lost a minute to to get uh, to Venegas and Marie Blanc, for instance, or when he lost that what was it, thirty seven seconds over two point seven k's on that climb in the TT. They know exactly what Pogacar's power output was, and therefore they will know to within one percent what Venegas was. So but they don't really know change. what heart rate is, for instance, because he doesn't wear a heart rate monitor. He didn't until they've decided they don't yeah. need it. So, because what that's just a but doesn't uh, that give you an outcome. idea of how hard he's working to produce those mm. watts? In other words, if he's pushing out four hundred watts, but his heart rate isn't high, maybe he's just fatigued. In other words, can you not? tell how a rider is performing based on not, their fatigue. Not really in a race situation yeah. um, because it's confounded by n- enough things. And truth of the matter is he'll tell you if he's fatigued because he'll come on the radio and say, I'm gone, I'm dead. Oh, as he said in the, <laughs> exactly. the interviews, I'm fucked. Exactly. That was okay. That was after the stage. But the same thing, like you yes. know already. So I don't think that the numbers give them anything that they didn't mm. already know. And so again, it's not about it's not about giving things for them. It's it's the perception. It's the fact that the conversation now around this Tour de France is wow, is this believable? You know, mm. that's what I'm trying to figure out in terms of the UCI and the credibility of the sport or the cyclist. If Venegor cared enough, what would he do to try and offset or refute or deal with some of the skepticism and i do think what those two gents were talking about there now we've moved away from it a little bit but i mean i'd never thought about aerodynamics i've always argued for like the power data you know was vinegar at 7.1 watts a kilo going up that climb or was he at 7.5 because that has significant implications 7.5 for 13 and a half minutes requires a physiology that is quite different from what's required at 7 to 7.1 Mm-hmm. In terms of what's my VO2 max, what's my capability of sustaining a given percent for a given period, like thresholds and so on. So that's where the power becomes important. What this guy in this interview you've just heard is talking about is that if you can add to the power the actual aerodynamic component, then you almost have a complete picture. And if that picture doesn't add up, then you are really got grounds to be suspicious. How do you measure aerodynamics? Well... <laughs> Remember that when a cyclist, let's say flat road, velodrome, for instance, no wind, indoor velodrome, no wind, your power output that's being applied to the pedals is propelling the bike forward. And the main things that you're overcoming are rolling resistance, your tires on the ground, and aerodynamic drag, mm-hmm. wind resistance, effectively, created by you or air moving resistance. through still air. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And that... that Aerodynamic resistance is a function of the coefficient of drag, which is things like the material you wear. You know, you don't wear like highly f- high friction material. Hmm. The shape. The reason of your, why you shave your legs. The shape of your bike, yes, that's because I'm very concerned about aerodynamics. <laughs> <laughs> that's, there's a reason I've never thought about aerodynamics. Is because it's like the, you know, it's like putting a aero helmet on a hippopotamus. It's, it's not really going to help much. <laughs> but. <laughs> But the the, the, the slimline cockpits, the shape of the bicycle, the wheels, like you look at the design of these bikes, even the seat tube, for instance, is now tapered and teardrop shaped because of aerodynamic benefits. So the technology in the bikes is all being driven towards making that bike move more cleanly through the air with less resistance. That makes sense, right? Mm. 
Then plus the surface area of the cyclist. You know, he doesn't sit up with his hands wide and his elbows out so that he makes a big big shape like a sail. He wants to be tucked as narrowly as possible. That's why you get TT bars, hands together. That's why you get the hoods on the bike now, even on a road bike, angled in so that they can get themselves into more aerodynamic yeah, positions. Yeah, so get you, yeah. Exactly. So as you reduce the aerodynamic drag, a greater proportion of your power goes towards forward movement as opposed to overcoming still air resistance. That makes sense, right? Yeah. Now, the relationship between those two is what determines the speed. So 250 watts in one position equals 38 k's an hour in an aerodynamic position equals 42. So if you know the watts and you know the speed and you can make estimates about the rolling resistance, then the only bit remaining is the aerodynamic drag. And that's how these sensors would then potentially work is they all, if, if the model has all the necessary inputs except for that, that becomes the outcome. Make sense? I just don't see how you could put a device on a bike that would measure aerodynamic because aerodynamics because you've got so many points that you'd have to put a sensor on to measure that. Well, that's if you're measuring it directly. But if you're measuring it as the outcome of a model in which the rolling resistance is known and the power output is known and the speed is known and the slope, for instance, is known, then you can work out that, okay, you've got a bit of drivetrain efficiency that you're losing. You've got rolling resistance you're overcoming. You've got gravity you're overcoming if you're going uphill. And you've got air resistance that you're overcoming. And the air resistance component is the part that the aerodynamic <laughs> sensor then starts to infer exists. So that's so it's a, so it'll be a model that relies on certain inputs and assumptions. You're right. So for instance, if I move from a smooth tarmac surface to gravel or to a very bumpy tarmac or sort of cobbled streets, then all of a sudden my model's shot because I'm not accounting for what's actually happening on the ground anymore. Mm. So now you no longer have utility. But as long as you can estimate or control those other things, you can. I think you can probably make the numbers work quite well. I've never looked into these. This this particular device mm. is called Notio Connect. Never never looked into that. Um, yeah. But but in the interview, and we'll post the link to it. It really is a very interesting interview. The whole thing. It's an hour and something long. Talks about some of those inputs and how it would work and. Apparently, all the pro teams are using it because the alternative is that you're in a wind tunnel, and you've all seen pictures of this. I think was there, I think in episode one of the Netflix series Unchained, they had EF in a wind tunnel because the fella, what's his name, he was going to try and win the Bissinger, Stefan Bissinger. Bissinger. He was trying to win the first stage, the prologue of the tour. And they had him in the wind tunnel. And that's where they're putting, like, how should your head be? Where are your shoulders? How narrow are your hands relative to your elbows? What height are your hands relative to your elbows? Should your hands be up or lower? You know, mm. there's famous pictures of Lance Armstrong testing at NASA, doing the same kind of things, you know, mm. with a tapered helmet and that sort of thing. So they, they do a lot of work on that. But then when they go out into the field or the roads, as it were, then those calculated CDA, the aerodynamic coefficients and surface areas from the lab, don't always translate because the cyclist is now on a moving bicycle, no longer stationary. Their head moves. As they get fatigued, they start to rock and change and so on. And all of a sudden, what was optimal indoor in the lab is no longer optimal outdoors. And the argument that's made in this particular podcast, and I think it is credible, is that some teams are quite far ahead of others in this respect. And he, t- he spoke there. I think he said if Finnegore's CDA is like 0.164, I think he threw the number out. That's not known. That's his estimate. You know, normally he used to say 0.2. I think teams have gotten that down. I think Bingham was at about 0.16 was the lowest. 
that's the CDA. In other words, the drag coefficient. That's the CDA. Yeah, <clears throat> that's the drag <throat> coefficient and the surface area of the cyclist. So smaller guy obviously can get into a smaller tucked position. Which because there was some criticism of Pagacha on that climb where exactly. he was sitting up, right, and it was affecting his aero. And he wasn't on a TT bike anyway, correct. And yeah. he was then sitting up, so he was. But he was going the climb. The problem. So, yeah, yeah. But the thing about it was, and Greg Hen- Greg Henderson's a former elite cyclist. He was actually chatting to me on Twitter. We had a little back and forth, in which he said they were told anything above twenty three k an hour aerodynamics is your friend. Mm. So. Unless your climb is so steep that your speed is going to drop to 23, which for us is 1%, for them is 9%, mm. you, you want to rather focus on the aerodynamic benefits and not the climbing benefits. And So they speak in this way. So I actually that, need to shave my legs when we're averaging 25 k's an hour. Shave your legs, get yeah. on that extra small suit, yeah. help ask Kate every, to help you every get into it. Every item I wear seems like it's extra small. Get Kate, <laughs> get Kate ready with the scissors to cut you out of it when you're finished riding. Get your teardrop helmet, your sunglasses, shave that beard. You'll be golden. You'll be at least 10 seconds a kilometer faster downhill. It's all relative. <laughs> you know, what's interesting is that it would be, I, I think obviously the other thing that I think comes to mind is that when you look at athletics, for instance, you have wind meters on the side of the track, hmm. which indicate whether it's a plus two or a minus two wind and you can judge a time. And that is based on the value of the performance. And 100 meters, if it's a, I think it's a two meter per second wind, that performance is seen as invalid mm-hmm. if it's a following wind. For me, the biggest change I would think on a climb, for instance, is whether there's a tailwind or a headwind. And if they were able to measure what wind was going up Alpe d'Huez or Tourmalet, they would have they would have another way to look at it. Oh yeah. So I'm surprised that we haven't got a couple of scientists up on those big stages with every, wind meters measuring every. Everybody corner. knows that if you're going to go and you're going to try and set a PB on on uh, Sakabosi, you wait for a strong southeaster. <laughs> yes, but they don't do it on the tour. You haven't. No, do you, you don't Visma, have luxury. Do you think Yama Visma would have a well, even a scientist would have a guy going up? No, on but the it, day changes, of the tour, measuring it changes their the tactics. Wind. Remember in the Giro yes. d'Italia, there was one climb and everyone thought this was going to be like a big day for the GC. And in the end, they basically rode it in in a groupetto of about yes, 60 guys. because it was a headwind. And it said it was a block headwind. And the problem mm. when it's a block headwind is that there's very little incentive to attack because mm. the moment you attack, you're out in that wind and all of a sudden, 15% more power than would normally be the case is having to overcome air resistance even on a 7% gradient. Because normally, by the time it gets to 7 8%, the air resistance drops low enough that it's all about gravity. Mm. And when it's a block headwind, it turns a 7% into a 2%. So there's no benefit to attacking. So it definitely changes their tactics. Mm. The guys, it's interesting, the guys who are making the estimates of power output are trying to account for wind now. So they're getting weather maps from the day and saying okay this part of the climb was a tailwind then they did a switchback it became a crosswind then they did another switchback it was a tailwind again two more sharp bends it was a headwind you know so they're trying to make those adjustments to try and refine that that measurement so maybe where 15 20 years ago the accuracy of the measurements was two to three percent now it's one to two percent because they're better at accounting for that but you're right it's a it's the unknown it's one of the unknown elements. Mm. Definitely makes a difference. What I thought was interesting, though, in this is that the UCI were considering it because he's right. If you know the power and you know, even with a small error, the, the CDA or the aerodynamic drag, you can very quickly see where the sums don't add up. And he talks in that 
about how they they modeled that time trial in segments, you know, because they knew it was a flat bit, then a climb, then a downhill bit, then a flat bit, and mm. steep climb, gradual climb. And so phase by phase, they his company had modeled for different power outputs, what would the speed be given different CDAs? That's what makes sense. It's almost like a triangle. Power, speed, as a result, what was your aerodynamics? Or if you assume aerodynamics and you assume power, what was your speed going to be? Or you assume aerodynamics and you assume power, what's the speed going to You know, I think right. I just said the same thing twice, but you know what I mean. You, I know what you mean. You, yeah. you anchor one, you anchor two and you one estimate the other. One plus one equals other. two and you can work it out a bit closer. Exactly. Yeah. And so he says that they did that and they, they bagatches they could make work, Wout van Arts they could make work, but Vinegord's didn't make sense unless the power was higher than they'd ever estimated or the drag coefficient was lower than they'd ever thought and estimated. Or and a that's combination because the numbers the meant that his CDA was out, the sp- was, the was out, of, out of kilter with the speed. The, prob- the speed. But the problem they've got, okay, so actually this is important that I get this right. You either know the speed and the CDA and you can estimate the power or you know the power and the CDA and you can estimate the speed or you know the speed and the power and you can estimate the CDA. Yeah. <laughs> you know and two and you estimate one, that, one. So they're probably working on the latter the, as the, the example. The problem they've got is they're missing two pieces. They haven't got all the power. Or, or the CDA. Yeah. All they've got is the speed. Yeah. And so you've got to then… But they can estimate power based on elevation versus weight of the rider. Yes, and so they do, you can do that for the climb, but for the flat bits, you can't do that anymore, right? Yeah. So then it starts to become tricky because that's where it gets, that's where most of the ride was spent, was in the 27 minutes of not climbing the steep mm-hmm. road. It was the gradual climbs and the flats and the downhills. So, and does that sort of make sense, like yeah. what you're trying to do there? And so in the end, it's interesting, and they say that the suggestion is that the power had to have been 390 watts or so on the flat and downhill bits and 430 on the uphill which equates for vinegar to 6.5 and then up to about 7.3, 7.4 for the steep part, which is exactly the same as what was estimated by all those guys doing models. So mm. I'm, And then I saw Yumbo, in fact, came out and said that they think the models that have been put out on the internet are pretty accurate. <laughs> so they've, yeah. they've validated, unlike Sky well, used Vinegar to do even was quoted as saying that he was looking at the numbers that, on his meter and they thought. were... He thought that the meter was wrong. So he was even amazed by his own performance. Yet he didn't slow down, which is interesting. <laughs> no. Because normally... If he must you have been that, thinking, goodness me, this looks suspicious. Yeah. But then it's interesting because then he trusted his own sensation and not yeah. the number. Yeah. Because if, he, if, if they'd gone out and said, you know, we've done this so often and we know that for a 35-minute effort you're capable of 350 and 410 watts on the climb, and now all of a sudden he was at 390 and 430... He, he would have slowed down, but he didn't. So obviously there's a degree to which they don't. And there's also the fact don't... Uh, the motivation that he had on the day was enormous because he was obviously highly motivated. He had the yellow jersey. He was the person that everybody was looking at to defend that jersey. So compared to, and some, we've talked about this in the previous podcast, when you look at the average speed of the peloton, across all of the riders. It was mm. something like 36 kilometers an hour. Yeah, 34.5 But don't, don't forget, yeah, so only probably the top 10 but riders are incentivized to go flat out. The rest of them are just trying to get underneath the cut. I'd say not even that many, eh? Yeah. Like, Maybe the top especially five. for a time trial like that, I reckon only three people go into that thinking they have a chance of winning it. Right. Uh, and the other 160-odd, however many were left, are actually just trying to make it 
comfortably. Mm. And maybe each team sends one or two guys out flat out just to test it out and see what it's like, see what the conditions are like in order to get some feedback before their top guy goes. Yeah. So it's only three or four are really going for Great. it. And that's why the, that explains the gaps. I think so. I think it does. Those two and the rest, yeah. And again, I don't think I don't think Bagatcha beating Van Art by a minute was a surprise at all. I no. think that was that's genuinely the difference between them. Yeah. I think Vinegar being that far ahead of everyone else was a bit of a surprise. But Vinegar being that far ahead of Pogaccia is probably more to do, I think, with Pogaccia regressing at that point, yes. which I think was confirmed the day after. Mm. Because, and this was the point, this was the bit we didn't cover in last week's podcast because it was literally happening while we recorded. And that's the, that, I mean, you don't need any power meter or any data to know Pogaccia struggling when Mark Soler is riding away from him mm. while not trying to. Mm. <laughs> so we, I like a good hypothesis. We don't call it theory here. We call it a hypothesis. Now, a couple of comments that I saw, we, we, we referred to an article last week by Tom Dumoulin where he talked about that particular time trial performance. And one of the parts that he talked about was he said that Yumba Visma as a team were just had the edge on UAE in terms of their professionalism. When I look at the personality that is Pogaccia versus Vingegaard or Vingegaard, and I look at the team dynamics and the professionalism of those teams based on what Dumoulin has said, I look at what happened to Pogaccia on those two days where he lost the most time. My theory is that Pogaccia did not fit, did not follow the protocols of recovery as much as Vinegar potentially did, because it seems like Yoma Visma were extremely professional with the way that they did that. And that maybe Pogaccia, because of his personality, was probably not the kind of guy who's just going to go straight from the end of the stage and straight into recovery and just stay away from people. He's the kind of guy who's probably going to socialize and chat and maybe not recovery the way he should. And I got this, I guess what I'm alluding to is when we look at the performances of those two riders, can we talk a little bit about accumulative fatigue and how much that potentially had the effect on a Bagala Bagacha, whereas a guy like Vinegar, who was and I say this, but I don't know that I don't know what happened behind the scenes. I'm guessing here, but there's potentially Vinegar was able to reduce and recover better than Pogaccia did, and that's why we saw those two days when they just were unmatched. It could be. Mm. It could be that Pogaccia got slightly ill. He had a cold sore on his mouth, yeah, which is true. often a sign of someone who's a bit immune compromised. He finished the day that he lost all that time. He, he had his jersey unzipped, which is a classic tell for him. The only other times that's ever happened is on the Col de Grenon last year, when he and uh, where he eventually succumbed to the repeated droglitch vinegar attacks. Remember mm-hmm. that? Mm-hmm. And anyway, that with the jersey unzipped, he had two two strips of kinesia, one running on the left side, one running on the right hand side. Tape, the down, yeah. yeah, that that sort of black tape that comes in many colours. His was mm-hmm. black. And incidentally, Willem, who I think won our Tour de France fantasy competition from yes. start to finish. In fact, he won the first stage Smashed and then held it. that lead. Yes, I tried in vain to claw him back, but <laughs> he made he made good substitutions as well. So he, congrats, Willem, for winning that. He said, "What what do you think that is? Do you think it's lymph drainage? I suspect that that. And again, here I'm also guessing. This is my theory." is that the time trial position the day before is, remember that time trial position is awkward. Mm. You're in such a hip flexed position, bent so low over the bars, that he probably had a little bit of hip flexion issue and they put the kinesio tape on there to try and activate hip flexors a little bit more. That would be my theory for it. Point is that, it, that this, the fact that he had kinesio tape on suggests that he had some muscular joint thing going on, immune compromised, 
maybe maybe 14 days of racing the way they raced just wasn't sustainable for him and he needed mm. he needed three or four days of easier riding and he didn't get him he got a time trial and a brutal day in the alps mm. then he got two easier days and then he recovered enough to win a race on saturday yeah. it might it might be that there was no recovery possible in the world short of one IV in each arm infusing him with a good but stuff but we could argue was better had or was, was better just, recovery or because was he was still a, he was still riding the same race or could have been a, just a more robust well developed system mm. in the t- sense that he was just trained and more well prepared for the demands of what he was doing remember that Pogaccio was attacking on day one to win bonus seconds at top of the mountaintop finish 7k from the finish line mm. he was there, there was there was a stage in fact, the stage that Van Aert got beaten by the French fellow, Victor Le Fay, mm-hmm. came third on that stage in a bunch sprint. Okay, mm-hmm. not a bunch sprint against Jakobsen and Philipsen because mm-hmm. they'd been dropped. But he's still contesting a sprint of, an, of a reduced peloton of 20, 30 guys. There was another stage five or six days later where Pogaccio came 10th contesting a bunch sprint. Th- those are not behaviors of someone who's trying to manage his efforts across a three-week tour. So... So, so it could it could be the recovery, but it could actually just be that he spends too much of his budget when he shouldn't, mm. and then he pays so for it in two days. In his racing tactics, ill-disciplined. In his in his racing tactics, yeah. And maybe maybe his recovery is perfect, but he's just doing too much. But it suggests the fact that he's doing that in the race situation that he's probably not doing things the way that he's potentially being advised it from a recovery be, but, to but a racing perspective. Remember, wasn't he wasn't he nineteen when he came third in the Vuelta? Yeah. I read that he oh, was no the, doubt a talent. I read that he was the first guy to finish podium in his first five GTs, mm. or, or one of only a few guys, because he third in the Vuelta, then I think he won the Tour, then he won the Tour, then he's been second in the mm. Tour twice. Look, he was showing so, promise from eighteen. I mean, we knew he was, going and he's to shown good. that he can get to the third week of a Tour in really good condition because he's won the final mountain stage even of this year's Tour. He won that famous TT against mm. Roglic with what was then thought of as one of the great TTs ever. Mm. Again, we're nice to have numbers to compare it. But the thing is, I, I don't know that he's incapable of recovery. I, I just I just don't think that he had the, the necessary physiology to match what was thrown at him for 14, 15 days and hold that ability. Because no one, everyone had a slightly bad day in this Tour de France, I'd have said. Mm. Vinegar might have had his bad day when no one noticed it, or it was a day that he was able to limit the losses to 25 seconds. Whatever well, he did have a bad day when he lost at time to Pagacha, and that's when we might, all think we were well, all thinking how do at we that know? point. Again, how do we know mm. that was a bad day? Well, He could have been at the same level he was the day before, but Pagacha was unbelievably good that day, maybe. Mm. Again, like I don't, was that a 100-meter guy running a 9.9 against a guy running a 9.7? Mm. Or was it a one meter guy running 10.1 against a guy running a 9.9? You know what I mean? Because like, we don't know. Because we don't have any numbers. <laughs> I'm absolutely amazed that somebody hasn't managed to get a data leak from these teams where you can look at these. Mm. Because this stuff exists. We know that yeah, Vinegar's data and his watts are, are have been recorded. But nobody has leaked them, which I find absolutely amazing in a day when the desire to have those numbers by anybody, whether it's a team, whether it's the media, whether it's the UCI, you know, that 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 isn't even made available to the UCI so they can yeah. look at it, you know, that it's not required, but it, it doesn't seem to happen. I'm blown away by that, to be honest, because it seems like something that somebody like 
would WikiLeak it at some point? <laughs> yeah, they they it's it's clear that they value that data like it's gold. Mm. I mean, the whole Those computers team, are very well password protected. Mm, mm, yeah, they they clearly do, and there's no incentive for them to leak it. I, I think you know. The incentive to keep it hidden, or not hidden, but to keep it secret, is stronger than the incentive to to ever make it known publicly. And just again, though, I to to wrap that up, I think the little bit of data is not going to data from the race published a few months after the race is not giving away any competitive advantages. All it'll end up probably doing is confirming the estimates to within one or two percent mm. anyway. So the the real value is how the data was created, like what what went into creating a human being capable of producing those watts. But if I was Vinegar, it would be in my in, I believe it would be in my interests to try and explain as much as I possibly could, not leave it to the imagination, because the 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 degree of trust in the sport is so low that whatever you leave to the imagination is going to be attributed to doping or mechanical doping or motors, etc. Right. So there are people who will never be persuaded. But there are, I think, enough people in the middle who would say, actually, you know what? Like, yeah, you should be in the top 1%, 0.1% of human physiology if you're capable of winning a Tour de France. So this is acceptable and understandable. But the, this, this bit that you just heard in an interview, the, the combination of the CDA and the power output, I think, if they could get that right, I mean, then, then we would have, I, I would certainly be far more confident in what I was seeing if I knew some numbers. Yeah, I think that's what everybody would love to see. But anyway, we'll see if that ever comes out. Interesting, just looking slightly ahead, we've got the World uh, Cycling Championships happening. Not only road, but also there's BMX and there's mountain biking and there's para road events and all sorts of things. Um, so big championships happening in Glasgow, of all places, in uh, Scotland. The men's race, 271 kilometers, 3,570 meters of climbing. So a big stage. And it's interesting to see whether... I think a guy like Pogacar is going to be one of the favourites going into that, purely because it's not massive mountains, but there's enough to break up the group. Mm. But it is uh, a, an all-round, is almost a almost a, a, a Berlure kind of. It's a it's a Flanders type. It's a profile, Flanders right? type. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. It's lots kind of, of lots, lots of, lumps. of small climbs, yeah. never flat, but so never it's long. A power, yeah. mm. It's a power, guys. Yeah, like the, I've seen, I've seen it said, Van Apool, yeah. those Van Aert, Van Aert, those guys, yeah. Evan Apool yeah. potentially. Yeah. So that will be Evanapool will be interesting because he's the one who'll come in without racing in his legs mm. after and, his crash. And so he will be maybe the maybe mm. the guy number one favorite, I don't know. Mm. We'll see. Should have a strong team as well. Yeah. Mm. Well, that's the thing about Worlds is like who who will be in his team and how will they work? Because he will have Van Aert and Philipson for one thing. So who's who's working <laughs> who's, there? Who's your number one? <laughs> like <laughs> if I mean how are they going to sort that out? And then is it is it at Olympics or is it also at World Road Race that they don't have radios? I don't know. I, I Definitely the yeah. Olympics. Because remember when Anna Kiesenhofer won the women's race and she was way out in front and was it Van Floyten celebrated not knowing there'd been someone cross the line about three minutes ahead of her? Yes. So definitely the Olympics, there's no race radios. I think World Champs is the same. So that immediately creates chaos. And I think... Yeah, I mean, that, that could suit someone like Pogacar's racing, but I think Evanapool, if yeah, I had to bet. They, they do have radios, according to what I've just Googled quickly, that all chance, but I don't think you're right. I think Olympics doesn't have it. Which I, a, I think it's the purest way. If you could get rid of radios in all cycling, I would be very yeah. happy with that because it really does open it up. 
And palm the riders meters. hate it, but and and and, and, palm meters, and power yeah. displays during yeah. races. Yeah. I still want and not, hot air monitors and cleats. Let's I'm get not, rid of all that I'm stuff. Not, and wheels. Make it pure and, round and gears wheels. exactly. Uh, I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not going back on what I said. I still want the power data. I just don't mm. want the cyclists to see it because yeah. I think the racing is quite mechanical. Mm. Even even. Even the women's racing now in this in this Tour de France so far, I, I just get the impression it's all very well managed, and there's not enough randomness. No, this is a bit sad actually. So they they of course it's hate a bit like riding having, behind you with your power meter on. They of course know. hate the. <laughs> they, don't worry, when you get the extra small suits on, you'll be fine. Um, <laughs> they hate the non radios. I've heard the cyclists say they absolutely hate it. They say no, it's dangerous, and there is I suppose there is a safety argument to be made, right? But yeah. you could have official race radio without allowing team instruction radio I think yeah, yeah so. I agree anyway so lots to look forward to with those world championships coming up also don't forget the world athletics championships is coming up in uh, Hungary and uh, um, I'm going to be there which is going to be quite nice so we're going to hopefully give you some insights into what's going on there and Ross will be watching from afar I'll be traveling for a change as opposed to just Ross um, but next week we'll get it tucked into a very uh, exciting episode around altitude training and as we discussed right at the start of our podcast we'll get something to do with the Icons crew talk about women's sport that should be an interesting one as well many thanks to Professor Ross Tucker and for now it's goodbye thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast follow us on Twitter at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.